Oh, I have to turn it on first. Good point. Let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. That was some powerful worship this morning. I want to thank the praise team for uh, just, uh, you guys do a consistent good job of, of inviting us into the presence of the Lord. And, and for those of you who are visiting with us, I, I, pray that, uh, I pray that you sense that this morning, that when you're in this place that you sense the presence of God. That's, that's what we want to be about. And, and that's also what we want to be about because over the last several weeks, we have been doing a series on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be actually coming to the very end of this series here, probably in about the next couple of weeks. Um, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit now for, gosh, probably about four months at least, a little over four, almost four months. But what we've been doing is we've just been casually taking a stroll through the entire Bible. We started in Genesis. We looked at the Old Testament. We'll talk a little bit more. I'm kind of going to give a summary here in a little while. But, but, um, but we've been just looking at what does the Bible have to say about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember last week, we looked at, we got as far as the book of Acts, and we looked at Acts chapter 2. And that was the big day, right? That's the new day that Jesus talked about in John chapter 17 when this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was going to begin. And if you remember last Sunday, we saw that, that there was a very special kind of community that happened in Acts chapter 2. And, and it, I don't know that it's ever happened quite like that since then. It has happened many times in many ways, but in a much smaller way uh, in pockets of Christianity all over the world. But, but there was something special about this community. There was something special about this. The word that we talked about a lot last week was the word koinonia. I'd like everyone to, to say that with me this morning. Everybody say koinonia. Koinonia. That's a, that's a Greek term that, that talks about the kind of of fellowship that they had in the first century. And last Sunday we said there's all kinds of fellowship. You can have fellowships in all different types of groups. But there's only a certain kind of fellowship that comes when you have people who are on fire living in the Holy Spirit individually. And when those people come together communally to worship God and to, to spend time in the fellowship with one another. There's a very special dynamic that happens there. And when the Spirit moves in groups of people like this, it creates an atmosphere of awe. It creates an atmosphere of miracles. And not even just miracles that you would think of, like you know, healing the sick or casting out demons and that type of thing. Those things are interesting, and, and we can talk about those. But I'm talking about the miracle of people's hearts changing. Because when you see the book of Acts chapter 2, you see something incredible. You see people literally selling their possessions and giving to the poor, taking what they have earned and, and hard worked for for years, and, and no longer holding on to those possessions. A miracle takes place in the heart of individuals when the Holy Spirit manifests His presence. And so, if you remember the Sunday before that, in John chapter 17, Jesus talked about the very dynamic that they were going to experience that was going to create this kind of community. And so John chapter 17, again, two sermons ago, um, he talked about this language of mutual indwelling. Remember that? He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he says, I want you to understand that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and, and, and you are going to be in me and I'm going to be in you. And so it's this, this mutual indwelling that we have. And, and he says that when we come together, the scripture is plain, when two or three come together in my name, and that's an important phrase, and if you don't remember that, go back and look. That's a very specific phrase. But when they come together in my name, what happens? 
I manifest myself, right? I am there. I reveal myself to them. I am literally present in their midst. A really good example of this is the passage that you and I read just a moment ago um, that we read from the, the screen. I want to read it to you again one more time, but I want you to notice this passage. Here they are. Think about the early church. This is only what? Uh, not even a month later. And they're praying. And I want you to notice the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what the purpose of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit does. It says, now, Lord, what was happening? They were being persecuted. Uh, the church had already grown from, from 3,000 to 5,000. And now the religious authorities are really starting to take notice. And they're wanting to try to put this thing out, put this fire out before it spreads. And I love what the Christians do. They come together. They pray. They fast. And here's what it says, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal, to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now look at what happens in verse 31. This is a great example of the, the kind of koinonia that takes place when we live by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. It was like an earthquake happened, right? And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Now, some people might have a hard time with that language. They say, wait a minute, weren't we filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts chapter 2? Well, guess what? They were. There are multiple infillings that take place. Does that make sense? Um, let me give you an example from, um, this might be a really crude example, but, but if you plug your cell phone up into the wall, you get a, a full charge, right? 100%. You could take that phone and use it all day long based upon that one charge, right? But what happens over time? If you got my phone, it dies in about an hour, right? The battery, whoof, goes down. I have to keep a charger with me almost wherever I go. But you have to plug it back in and get charged up. Well, guess what? The day that you were baptized, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit does not change. He's there. He's present. He's with you. He's interceding for you. He's changing you. He's transforming you on the inside. But the problem is you and I tend to do what? We tend to forget he's there. We tend to ignore his presence. We tend to turn ourselves away from him. And so what we do is because we quench the Holy Spirit or we don't pay attention to the Holy Spirit or we get wrapped up in the flesh as opposed to being in the Spirit, our batteries start to drain, right? Why does it say, remember that passage over in Colossians where it says, um, it says, don't get drunk with wine, right? He's talking to the Christians there, and he's addressing a, a common problem just like then, just like today, drinking and, and drugs and that type of thing. And he says, listen, don't do that. Don't, don't get into, the old King James says, don't get into dissipation. Don't get carried away and get drunk on alcohol. He says, if you're going to get drunk, get drunk on what? The Holy Spirit. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he tells you how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why the praise team is so vitally important to the life of the Eastside family. Because one of their roles is to bring us, to position our hearts, if you will, so that we can then become aware of his presence yet again. Amen? Okay. So in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31, we see an example of what the Holy Spirit produces or is supposed to produce in the life of the church. Now, I want to clarify something that, um, that I said last week. Um, David and I were talking after church, and, and uh, David Miller, and David was reiterating a point that, um, that, that he thought was a really good point, which I agreed. Um, we were talking about the first century church last week. And if you remember, in the churches of Christ, 
This was kind of our thing, right? We had the restoration plea. It was our idea to go back to the Bible and, and like this old book that I, I used to have here, uh, return to the old past, if you will. And, and if you look on the left, and this is all the, the, the identity markers that we used to, to really hold very special in the churches of Christ. You know, uh, it, it, the origin of the church, the, the right name of the church, the, there's only five right things you can do in a worship service. Sing, pray, preach, give, Lord's Supper. How to become a member. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Man, look, we had that thing so systematized down to a T. Why? Because we were trying to figure out the right way to do church. And in the early or late uh, 1800s or whatever, as, as this thing was beginning to, 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 to get some steam, our founders said, you know what, let's try to get away from that. There's too many churches. There's too much division. There's too much fighting. There's too many different ideas. Let's try to come together. And so the idea was, hey, let's go back to the Bible. Let's see what they did. Let's just copy what they did, and let's try to be one. Well, that was a great, noble idea, but did it work? And so the, 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 the comment that David made was so important. I thought it was so good. And David, when you watch this, I'm going to give you credit for this idea. But he said this, it's not so much that we should have went back to the first century church and looked at what they did and tried to copy what they did. What we should do is go back to the first century church and ask the question, what did they actually do? Because when you read the book of Acts, you don't see people who are trying to figure out the proper way to do a worship service. You see first century Jews and, and Gentiles who are simply trying to follow Jesus. You see, they were doing it too. But they were going back even further. They were going back to the source, to the Messiah, to the Master, to Jesus Himself. And they, in their first century context, was trying to emulate the life of Christ in their context. The question that we need to be asking is, how do we do that today? How can we emulate the life of Christ today? Well, it didn't work for us in the, in the churches of Christ. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this very boldly. Because when we went back to restore the first century church... All we did is we restored what we thought were the externals of what a worship service should look like. What we should have done is gone back to see what gave the life of the early church. What moved the church. What led them to want to offer up their lives in service to Jesus Christ. What moved them to want to lay aside their differences and be one. What moved them to want to serve and even give up their necks, to give up their lives for the sake of Jesus. There was only one thing, one common denominator throughout the entire book of Acts that they had that we never preached. And that's the Holy Spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit. Now, it may sound hard to believe this, but... Um, but I believe this is why so many churches of Christ are dying on the vine. If you look at all the churches that are out there today, look at this chart right here. This comes from 21st century Christian. This is not no biased source here. This is coming from our own group. We're the fastest declining church group in the entire nation. And when you compare that to the rest of the nation, let me go ahead and go over here. I, well, I thought I had two, but I didn't, so I'm going to go back. I apologize. I had another slide up here, and I guess I forgot to put it in. But when you compare that to the rest of the nation, there we go. When you compare it to the rest of the nation, it is markedly even more so in decline. Now, by the way, we're not the only ones starting to come to the conclusion that we probably should have paid more attention to the Holy Spirit. Actually, there's a lot of churches that are having this conversation right now 
all over America. I want to read you this quote really quick. This is, um, this is Dr. Larry Patton. He's a pastor. He's a pastor uh, up in Arkansas. And um, he was commenting about David Platt. I don't know if you guys have ever read or seen David Platt. He wrote a book sometime back called Radical. And it was a big deal, especially in the Baptist churches, because David Platt comes out of the Baptist church. But Dr. Larry Patton, is, uh, he's a pastor at a community church, and he was reading this one time. He read that book, and listen to what he said, because I agree with his sentiment. He said, this is where I'm most convicted as a pastor, that I am part of a system that has created a whole host of means and methods and plans and strategies for doing church that require little, if any, power from God. I am frightened by the reality that the church that I lead can carry on most of our activities never realizing that the Holy Spirit of God is virtually absent from the picture. Now listen to this. Many of you have heard of Francis Chan. He wrote a book sometime back called Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And I love what he said this. He said, God put His Spirit in us so that we could be known for our power. But sadly, most believers in churches are known for talent and intellect rather than supernatural power. What's worse is that we're okay with it. I'm willing to bet that there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say that they have experienced His presence or action in their lives over the past year. And many of them do not believe that they can. So David asked a really important question last week. He said, Tim, I hear you, but how do we do that? How do we do that? If we really want to try to go back to the first century church and recapture some of what they had, how does that work? Well, church, listen. This is exactly why I have been doing this series over the last few months. This is exactly why we've been doing the discipleship trainings to try to have just opportunities where we can get together and learn how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, learn how to see His presence and activity in our lives because the answer for how we can restore the spirit and life of the early church is to first seek Him, to seek a real relationship with Him. I don't mean just Bible study. I mean get to know the author of that Bible actually learn how to have real encounter. We, we need to recapture this language of encounter or experience. Some, I don't know why, but we've become so afraid of that. But we need to re-embrace that because that was the normal experience of the first century church. They encountered the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. So we need to, we need to, to seek Him, to seek a real relationship with the Spirit, allow ourselves to be restored from the Spirit, come together like the first century Christians did, and pray, fast and pray. And I mean fast and pray for his presence, fast and pray for his outbreaking. But you notice that they did it in the context of mission. And I think that has to be us too. We have to get ready for the mission. You guys are about to go on mission, right? And, and you've noticed that when you go to Africa, when you get on mission, things happen a little differently with the Holy Spirit, don't they? They start popping up left and right because that's where the Holy Spirit likes to show himself powerful is when you're in the midst of doing the work of Christ on the earth. So with that said... What I want to do, what I want to get into this morning as we get ready to start wrapping up, we're going to wrap up in about two or three weeks. I think that's about how much further the Holy Spirit has, has been leading me to do this series, and I don't think we're going to go much further. But, but I want us to start asking the question as we get ready to wrap up this entire four-month series, two words, so what? 
So what? What does this mean for me and you practically? Well, so far we've been looking at who the Holy Spirit is. We've looked at his works, especially all the way throughout the, the Old Testament. Um, we've looked at the Holy Spirit in the New Testament church. But now we're kind of bridging the gap. Here we are. We're not in the first century. We're in the 21st century. So what should this look like for you and I today? It's here where I think it's going to be really important for us to ask the question, what did the Holy Spirit mean for the early church? Because if we can ask the question and seek the answer, what did the Holy Spirit really mean for the first century church? If we can answer that, then we will be able to bridge the gap and be able to answer the question for ourselves. Whatever it meant for them is what it should mean for us. Does that make sense? Now, so far, we have, uh, we've looked at this theme of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament all the way up to the book of Acts chapter 2 with the giving of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, when you read the rest of the book of Acts, what do you see? Story after story after story after story. I'm not even going to get into it because it's just too much material. But over and over again, in fact, in the book of Acts alone, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Guess how many times the Holy Spirit is talked about in the book of Acts? In 28 chapters, it's mentioned 56 times. He's mentioned 56 times. Do you think the Spirit is supposed to be important to the church? You bet. Almost twice per chapter throughout the entire book. And then think about this. When you leave the book of Acts, when you get into the book of Romans, and then you get into the rest of the letters of the New Testament. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Okay, hold on. I don't want to do that weird thing again. There we go. Okay. When you get into the rest of the New Testament, what do you have? You've got the Apostle Paul. You've got the Apostle Peter. You've got James. You've got all the other writers that are, that are writing the churches. And what are they doing? When you look at the content of these letters, and I'm not going to tell you that every letter is all about the Holy Spirit, but I'll tell you this. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, if you look at every letter, I challenge you this. Go to any letter in the book. You will find that the Holy Spirit is one of the central things that's talked about in every letter. Why? Because what are the letters trying to do? The letters are trying to do two things. The letters and the rest of the New Testament are trying to remind you of who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and how you can live the life that he came to give you through the Holy Spirit. So again, almost every other chapter in the letters, you're going to read about this relationship that we're supposed to have with the Holy Spirit. Something Marsha Allen said to me, is she here? Is Rick and Marsha here? Marsha, um, on the last day that we were having our discipleship training, we had went through about 14 or so sessions. And I was teaching 95.5 time. I was teaching quiet time, learning how to listen for the Holy Spirit. And finally, when we got to the end of that, Marcia, you know how Marcia is. She, she, she gets real animated and happy and her eyes light up. You probably remember this, Roxanne. She goes, here's the thing that blows me away. I did not realize until we went through this how much the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit. She said the Holy Spirit literally is everywhere. And that that is the life that we're called to live. So when you look at the rest of the New Testament, and we're going to wrap up this series here because this is, this is how it pertains to us. If you take Acts through Revelation and you look at what is the role and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, you find three main things. I want to share those with you right now. We're only going to have time to cover one this morning. We're only going to cover it briefly because we've already talked about it some in the past. But we're going to cover one this morning. Next week we're going to wrap up and we're going to cover the last two. But this is what the Holy Spirit meant for the first century church. And I want to offer this to you as what the Holy Spirit should mean for me and you today. Okay? 
Number one, let's look at this. The threefold work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Number one, His presence. His presence. That's exactly what our worship team was praying about here just a moment ago. He provides communion with God and He provides fellowship with His people. It only comes through the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, these are written in order of importance. I want to say that clearly because I know that there's a lot of churches, especially our charismatic friends, who can. I know that there are excesses in that branch of Christianity just like there are excesses in this branch of Christianity too. Sometimes we can get the cart before the horse. We put the gifts before the presence. We put the gifts before the gift giver. Does that make sense? The primary role and work of the Holy Spirit in the church, number one, is to provide God's presence. Now, His presence does what? We sang about it in the song just a moment ago. Number two, it brings His transformation. When you are in the presence of God, you cannot but be changed. Things in your heart, sins will begin to fall off in the presence of the Father. So he provides sanctification and he provides holiness in our lives. And then thirdly, only after the first two, he then provides his gifts. He provides sanctification and holiness. I wrote it twice. See, I messed up there. What, what, What that should say is he provides what is needed for his ministry to be accomplished. Okay? He will provide whatever is needed for his ministry to be accomplished in that order, in that um, importance. Okay, so let's talk about the first one really quick. The primary role of the Holy Spirit in the church is to, to manifest the presence of God in Jesus. And for what we saw two Sundays ago, this most naturally happens like we saw in the book of Acts chapter 2 when a community of Jesus followers comes together with a shared commitment to seek the presence of Jesus with their whole hearts, to be empowered to do His will. It's in those contexts, in the midst of authentic communion with one another, that God, that Jesus Himself will literally manifest Himself, often very powerfully, sometimes with miraculous things, because of the coming together of God's people to do His work. Now, I showed this to you uh, early on in the the sermon series. This is kind of an overview of the entire uh, Bible. But we use this diagram, if you remember, to kind of get the bigger picture of the overall story of God and kind of the theme of the Holy Spirit. Um, I want to use this again one more time just to kind of reiterate something with where we're going. There is a trajectory with the will of God on this earth. Do you understand? God's doing something. He hadn't, he hadn't gone to sleep. He's not gone away. He's not ignoring us anymore. God is still working behind the scenes to bring about his plan of redemption. Now watch this. In creation, what happened? We saw the Spirit's role in creation. What did He do? He carried out the work of God. He created. He's the creator in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, He's the recreator. Amen? He created us, and then what happens? We fall. Adam and Eve sin. Spread. Uh, Sin spreads to all humanity. But we don't see the Spirit stopping there. What do you see the Spirit do? He starts striving with man. This leads us up to the story of Noah. It says for 120 years, he says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. So all the way through the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit moving with people. He's operating on people. He's trying to bring people back to God. He's trying to bring people to repentance. And then there's two stories that emerge in God's story. You have this story at the bottom. This is the story of the world. That's the story of humankind without God. That's the story of humankind without the Holy Spirit. It's a story of the downward, endless cycle of sin that leads to disease and death, and ultimately it leads to hell. 
Now, there's another story that begins to emerge. And then you see the Holy Spirit again. He operates in the life of Abraham. He comes to Abraham and Sarah. He says, guess what? You're going to have a kid. He's, oh, there's no way I can have a kid. I'm too old to have a kid. But you see the work of the Holy Spirit. And what happens? That child, Isaac, then has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 sons become the tribes of Israel. And then in the Old Testament, we have the nation of Israel. Well, guess what? God, again, is pursuing his people all the way throughout the Old Testament. That's why he creates the tabernacle. That's why he creates the temple. That's why he creates the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Why? Because God is trying to create a space amongst sinful humanity so that he can have a place to dwell in his presence with his people. That's all that is. But they failed. Time and time and time again, they failed. And so God would send prophet after prophet after prophet, again, trying to call the people back to God, trying to call people back to relationship, but they wouldn't listen. And so by the time you get to the very end of the Old Testament, by the time you get to the book of Malachi, what do you see? The prophets start talking about a new day, a new covenant. It's not going to be like the one I gave a long time ago, the one that they broke. This new covenant is going to be different. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit inside of them. I'm going to change them. I'm going to come inside of them. I'm going to move them to keep my laws. By the time you come to the end of the Old Testament, there's two promises. One, I'm going to send the Messiah. He's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring the new covenant. Number two promise, I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit on all people so that they will be able to follow me and move in my ways. Keep going in the story. What happens next? You get to the New Testament. We see God continue to, to work to fulfill this plan of redemption. You get to the Gospels. You see Jesus arrive as the Messiah. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He lives his life perfectly under the law, showing us the life of, that God intended through the law, but we were unable to because of sin. And then on the cross, what happens? Jesus takes that righteousness and he exchanges it. Well, exchanges it us. Yeah. I can't say it right. He exchanges his righteousness for our sinfulness, right? He exchanges that for us. And then number two, we get to the book of Acts, and then we see the second fulfillment of the second promise, or the, the, the fulfillment of the second promise. He pours out his Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift. And then on the day of Pentecost, we have that fulfillment. And now, instead of the temple in the Old Testament being the place where God dwells, now in the New Testament, his people become the temple, the place where God dwells. Now, God's presence dwells in the hearts of believers. Now they are the temple. Now collectively when two or three gather in the name of Jesus, or think about it this way, in koinonia with Jesus. When they gather in koinonia with Jesus, in koinonia with each other, Jesus manifests his power in their midst. And so church, now, because of the presence of God within us, we are to be God's people. We are now empowered to carry on the mission that they started 2,000 years ago. Now, if you've noticed, we've, we've traced this theme all the way through. There's a word that Paul likes to use in his letters. It's the word telos in Greek. And the word telos means goal. It's the goal, okay? And it's the word that he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm not going to go over there this morning. But he talks about everything is moving toward a goal. And what is the goal? You tell me, church. What is the goal of all of God's work since the fall of man and creation? Somebody shout it loud. Heaven. Okay, but heaven's a place. It's not just to take us to a place. There it is. Somebody said it. Relationship. The goal of God is to be with his people. 
That's the goal of God. That's what we had in the beginning, but we lost it, see. We walked with God in the cool of the day. We had presence with the Father. And if you look all throughout the Old Testament, what has God been doing? He's chasing you down. He's wanting presence with you. He's wanting you to be in his presence. But he has to get rid of sin. And so you see this entire trajectory of this story. And all of it has been to get rid of sin so he can create a place so he can be with his people. And here's what happens when you get to the book of Revelation. John sees the telos. He witnesses the judgment of the wicked. He sees the fire of God fall upon humanity. He sees the, 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 the unrighteousness be judged. And then he gets to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, and listen to the goal, the telos of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and they will be, they, and, and, and he will be their God. Isn't that incredible? The goal, the telos of God's work all throughout the Bible is to bring us into complete unity with him. That place is what we call heaven. I, my kids ask me sometimes when they, when they were little, Daddy, where's heaven? And uh, I don't know if the Spirit gave me this one time or what, but it, it just came out. I said, wherever God is. Wherever God is, that's heaven. And what do you see in the book of Revelation? You see heaven coming down to earth so that we can dwell with him again. So ultimately, ultimately, when we talk about the primary work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, his primary work is to let you experience the presence of the Father. So as we close, I only have one question. Have you ever experienced God himself? Have you experienced the Holy Spirit yourself? If you have not, it's not because he picks some over others. God does not play favorites in his family. The gift is your gift. And the primary role of that gift is to have you experience the presence of God. So if you haven't experienced his presence, then I'm going to ask you if you would, in a moment you can come forward and ask for prayer. I'm just going to ask and pray. It's not my job to do anything in your life. It's really his. But I will pray with you to ask for more of the Spirit's presence in your life. Sometimes we've got to be filled up again, right? The battery gets low because of whatever reason, maybe sin in your life, maybe struggles, maybe because, like me, for many years, you were taught one thing and you thought, you know what, there's no way in the world the Spirit even talks today or does anything today. I don't believe that. Maybe you've come to a place where you no longer believe that and you want to start noticing his presence. If that's the case, come forward as we stand and as we sing.